As you can see by that hymn, I'm trying to, of course, place on your mind this morning the evangelistic message of Mark. So if you would, please turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Verse 13. Listen carefully to the holy, infallible word of God. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerskis, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we see this passage before us. The Jesus is forming, shaping the New Testament church of which we ourselves are a part. We ask, oh Lord, that we would see the importance of Christ's action here for our own church, for our own lives, and how he did appoint his disciples unto apostles. In Christ's name, amen. Another place from where Jesus departs. Another place from where Jesus departs. Now Jesus is departing to a mountain. We have already seen and experienced that the departure, the withdrawal theme in Mark's gospel is significant. John the Baptist had departed into the wilderness. Jesus is baptized by the Baptist in the Jordan River, and then he is driven by the Holy Spirit into a deep, barren wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Then after proclaiming the gospel of God, Jesus withdraws to the sea. 
and calls his first disciples in chapter 1 verse 16. After forgiving the sins of the paralytic and healing him, Jesus withdraws to the sea and calls Levi. We saw that in chapter 2. Then as we have recently seen after the five narratives in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, 6, he withdraws with his disciples once again to the sea. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now, Mark's departure theme expands from the wilderness and sea to A mountain here in our text in verse 13. We also noted that prior to the most recent departures, Mark's narrative records a hostile situation addressing Jesus. Last week we noticed that the unclean spirits identified Jesus as the Son of God. Since it was from an unbelieving spirit, Jesus orders the spirit not to make known that he is the Son of God in the public arena. Even so, in this previous section that we looked at last week in verses 7 through 12, we accented the fact that the bridegroom is now present with his disciples and a crowd that is from various geographical locations that includes a population mixture of both Jew and Gentile. Herein, Jesus is launching Mark's version of the Great Commission. In the ministry of Jesus, we are beyond Israel coming from Judea and Jerusalem to John's baptism to Jesus evangelizing the good news of his sonship to both Jew and Gentile. In doing so, Jesus is living the life of the church prior to the church living her own life from Pentecost till Christ's second coming. But what is fascinating is that Jesus is going to live the life of the church in a joint relationship between the bridegroom himself and his bride, the church, in this incident which is before us, the disciples. At this same time, he will be training training the future bride for their ministry. Jesus' path of proclaiming the gospel will be from the forecast of the power of the resurrection, as we saw there in that section from 2.1 through 3.6, to a life of suffering and death 
in order to attain the resurrection from the dead. We are applying, as you saw last week, Philippians chapter, chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. The path of the visible and the invisible church will follow the exact same pattern. As we look at the mountain scene in our text, we need to be alerted, alerted to that various of various scenes of Jesus and the mountains in his ministry. The context in the flow of the narrative, whether we are looking at mountain scenes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John will assist us with understanding a particular mountain scene under investigation. When looking at Matthew and Mark, it is important to realize a certain fact that about both of those Gospels, that both of those Gospels do not record the ascension of Jesus Christ at the end of the Gospels. Matthew and Mark do not record the ascension of Christ. Well, for this reason, there are certain mountain scenes, not all of them, but there are certain mountain scenes in Matthew and Mark that press upon our minds the ministry of Jesus From his status as the ascended Lord. Some mountain scenes in his ministry presuppose Jesus' ascension. Some of them presuppose Jesus' ascension. And I want to strongly suggest before us that this passage that we have before us in Mark is such a test, is such a text. To repeat, remember what we noted last week. Mark views Jesus living the life of the church prior to the life of the New Testament church after Pentecost. And he brings his disciples into his ministry since they will inaugurate the formal beginning of the New Testament church. Specifically, the disciples are joined to Jesus' great commission evangelism to Jew and Gentile. We established that point last week in verses 7 and 8 of the previous text. But now the disciples must be ordained. Don't miss this, what's happening in this text. The disciples must be ordained as the officers to and in the church. Who will be called to participate in Jesus' kingdom ministry? In the ministry of the good news as the ordained leaders in the bride of Christ. 
Who does Jesus choose? Elect. That's the connotation of the word called here that's before you in the text. Who will he choose? He will elect to suffer as a fellow servant with him, as well as to be a follower into the den of the hostility of the gospel. Remember that theme? The hostility of the gospel. In the history of God's revelation in the Old Testament, The mountain is often the the place of divine and human encounters. God dwells in heaven. And humans dwell on earth. The mountain in Old Testament revelation often represents the place where God and humans come together. God condescends towards humans on earth, and it is the place where humans ascend towards God. There are numerous examples of this in the Old Testament. But for our purpose this morning, and you can probably guess, I'm going to mention one in terms of the concentration of our message. That is... Moses and Mount Sinai. Moses, as a type of Jesus, the mediator between God and Israel, ascends the mountain of God, Sinai, God's presence and throne. The 12 tribes coming out of Egypt are not allowed to touch the mountain lest they will die. Exodus 19, verse 12. In the giving of the law, Moses and Israel have the same posture before the mountain. Now watch. Now watch. It is not a coincidence in the flow of Mark's narrative, so carefully crafted that we are now meeting the appointment and the commission of the disciples on a mountain. What a difference from Moses in Sinai. Are you seeing it? Like Moses, Jesus ascends. He went up on the mountain. And by the word, by the way, that Greek word is the same word that the Bible uses concerning Jesus' ascension. That's not true in every case. But I definitely believe it is right to transfer it in this context. The divine priest, the divine prophet here in our text is not Moses. He is more than Moses. He is the bridegroom. 
Remember what we have seen. He is the bread of the presence of God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of God, who does not tell his disciples to remain at the foot of the mountain. The disciples are not remaining at the foot of the mountain. Jesus calls the disciples to ascend with him as their mediator. He appoints them. The literal Greek carries the idea that Jesus is making them, creating them as his disciples. Their appointment as disciples is a result of creating what you're seeing here is creating the new Israel. The 12 tribes are now before your eyes being replaced being replaced by the 12 disciples. Mark is placing the birth of the new Israel, the church of the good news in Jesus, right before your eyes. The disciples are experiencing the words of Paul right here before us. If anyone is in Christ, he is, what is the literal Greek there in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? He is a new creation. Creation. The disciples... Receive their divine ordained appointment from within the context of the ascended Jesus. And Mark accents exactly the position I am taking before you. Notice the language with respect to the twelve in verse 14. Look at verse 14. And he appointed, made, created 12, whom he also named apostles. Out of nowhere. (laughs) Out of nowhere, the disciples are referred to here in the text as apostles. On the mountain and in their ordination. The term disciple refers to a pupil of a teacher, a follower of a teacher or master. This is clear when Jesus says to Simon, Andrew, and Levi, follow me. At the heart of the lifestyle of a disciple is to assimilate the life pattern of one's master. In this case, for the disciples of Jesus, the pattern in terms of their life must be that which goes from suffering to exaltation. Suffering to exaltation. As a reminder, here is the question 
that Mark's got story about Jesus places candidly before each of us this morning on every single page of his gospel. Let's speak personal here. Let's speak very personally. Are you willing to follow Jesus in light of the hostility that the gospel of the good news receives. Are you? Is the cost of discipleship a willing, notice the word, a willing challenge in your daily walk in Christ? Well, moving on, the word apostle accents the idea of being an ambassador of the gospel, of one being sent forth to be a messenger of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We refer to the time after Jesus' ascension to the end of the first generation of the disciples and the apostles as the what? The apostolic period of the church. So an apostle is an ambassador, is a messenger of good news baptizing Jew and Gentile into Christ throughout the world, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're hearing the Great Commission, right? Now comes the commission as apostles of Jesus. What does Jesus say there in verses 14 and 15? The commission has two parts. They are to preach the gospel of the Son of God. And secondly, they are to cast out demons. And who is going to be with them with respect to this commission? Look at verses 13 through 15. Who's going to be with them? Look at verse 14 very closely. Who is it going to be? It's going to be Jesus. It's going to be Jesus. Does this sound familiar? Think once again of the great commission in Matthew's gospel. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have we not been saying that Mark's gospel is applying the great commission into the ministry of Jesus Christ? Well, this point really reaches its focus right here in verses 13 through 15 of our text. By this priestly divine mediator and divine prophet, As the word of God, these disciples are cleansed, standing right beside him on the mountain. Notice 
as they go up into the mountain. These disciples are not struck by death like the warning at Sinai, but appearing beside Jesus by the future purging of sin on the cross already being assumed. And the future resurrection and ascension of Jesus already assumed in this event. In order for these future apostles to see Jesus living the life of the church before their own eyes. Now carefully note, they are presently being ordained, appointed, created but they are not exercising their commission yet. They're not exercising their commission yet. They will not officially act upon their commission until they are sent by Jesus two by two in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. First, they need to be trained as a disciple, a follower of their teacher and master of sharing the the sufferings of Jesus' hostility unto death before they move on to their apostolic office of being an ambassador and messenger of the victorious resurrection and ascension of Christ's church into Christ's church. To be conformed to the image of Christ, they participate in the good news. Jesus is the evangelist as he trains his disciples and apostles as evangelists. The path is not going to be a bed of roses. Just note what Jesus faces and the disciples observe in the rest of Mark 3, our coming messages on the rest of this chapter. Serious, very serious challenges face Jesus and his disciples as they move to eventually become fishers of men. How are you going to understand how you become a fisher of men if you don't understand what it means to suffer for the gospel? Now, who are these disciples? Who are these apostles of the new Israel, the New Testament church? We have before us in our text the only time that Mark lists all 12 disciples in his gospel. 
There are a few things, or many things, we could talk about concerning this list, but I'm only choosing a couple of things. There are a few things we want to highlight about the list in Mark's Gospel. First, note the first three names, Peter, James, and John. They do represent a privileged group among the disciples. It is those three that will appear in five. 39, in the healing of Jairus' daughter. It's only those three that Jesus takes in terms of the Mount of Transfiguration, chapter 9, verse 2. It is only those three that Jesus takes and, and points out the signs of the end of the age in 13.3. Second, note that Mark provides Simon's nickname given to him by Jesus. Peter's meaning, meaning stone or rock. He is the first disciple, apostle mentioned because Peter becomes a spokesman and a representative of the group during Jesus' ministry as well as becoming the leader in the apostolic church, not a pope, but a leader. Peter's name, the rock, represents the confessional rock of the church that Jesus is the Christ. And it is upon this confessional rock that Jesus is the Messiah, that the thirst and hope of the believer for Christ alone is their salvation. That's you, isn't it? That's you, isn't it? Your only thirst and hope is salvation in Jesus Christ. Yes. Christ is the fortress of our faith that will not be shaken. Yes, Peter will be taken from the state of denial to the state for his own name's sake, given to him by Jesus, that he, Peter, and the bride of Christ will rest upon the salvation and glory of Christ as their mighty rock and fortress. That is why I included Psalm 62 in the call of worship this morning. Because I want you to see that Peter's life and the life of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they embody those verses. Five through eight. How many of us Love to refer to God as our refuge and strength, a rock that will never be moved in our lives. Peter did experience that. Did he not? God's providence takes him from denial to writing the church epistles of steadfastness.
Third, James and John are reported to be sons of thunder, considering their later outbursts in Mark's narrative in chapter 9, 38, and 10, 35 through 39. Fourth, Mark changes the name of Levi, the tax collector that we saw there in chapter 2. Verses 13 through 17, to Matthew, a common Semitic name in the list of the disciples there in verse 18. Scholars speculate much about this change, but Mark gives no indication why he makes the change here, and we're going to have to leave it at that. But fifthly, what I want you to see here, in order, the order of the last two named disciples is interesting. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. A zealot being called to follow Jesus and commissioned to the evangelistic message of the gospel is very positive in this case. For example, we can be reminded of the zealous and jealous act of Phineas. That's why we read about him this morning in the priestly line in the Old Testament against Israelite idolatry and turning away God's wrath upon the Old Testament church. Simon the Zealot represents that the New Testament church going forward must be zealous. Are you zealous? That's the church of Jesus Christ. Are you zealous? Must be zealous and jealous for the sacred message of the good news of the gospel found solely in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is that your heart? Is that the heart of our congregation this morning? And notice that Simon the Zealot is mentioned before Judas because Simon is the true religious end of, church, of Christ's church prior to the mention of Judas. There's a reason why he is mentioned right before Judas. Don't squash what the Holy Spirit is putting in Mark here. This is crucial in terms of the message and the identity of us as the church of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely crucial. So it is that he is mentioned before Judas because Simon is the true religious end of the church prior to the mention of Judas being jealous for the sacred message that is found in Jesus as good news. In contrast, in contrast to a person who will forsake and sell out the good news for money. 
quite a contrast in these last two figures mentioned. There has been a lot of questions and controversy. Maybe this is going on in your own mind right now about our Savior ordaining and training Judas as a disciple, apostle, when he knew he would betray him. There are many directions that this discussion goes, but allow me to place one point before you this morning. Keep in mind that Christ, as the head of the church, will oversee both the visible and the invisible church here on earth. In the apostolic church, as well as the church going forward, there will be men ordained to be officers in the church who will betray Jesus' name. As Jesus lives the life of the church, his own ministry will be confronted with this characteristic of betrayal. In fact, betrayal may lead the true followers in the church like it did For Jesus to suffer and die for the zeal of good news. But, Church of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus and the invisible church proves that betrayal loses. Betrayal loses in the eternal marriage of the bridegroom and the bride. That is yours. That is the promise. It's already forecasted for you in the holy word of God. Already forecasted for you in the life of your Savior who has lived the life of the church before you. Take comfort. Take comfort that nothing can remove you from the promises of the rich good news that is found in Jesus Christ as you place your devoted, devoted faith in him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for the church. 
We're thankful for what he has done for the church. We ask that we would continue to look unto him so that we see the expectations of our own journey, our own understanding of what the Christian life really is. Lift us up this morning. Continue to nourish us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.